Welcome to Pontifax. I'm Fry. And I'm Bree, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 25, Pope Stephen I. Just Stephen. If we want to be accurate, it's Stephanus, but he's known as Pope Stephen, so he's going to be Steve. Okay. What kind of pope name is Steve? Let's see what kind of pope he is and see how you feel about the name afterwards. All right. There will be more Pope Stevens, but I don't know if they're going to live up to the standard that this one will set. So, Pope Stephen was born in Rome, but was apparently Greek in heritage, and his father's name was Jovius. I hope he was so happy. He was jovial, and he gave his son a very boring name. And at some point, Stephen enters the church and distinguishes himself to rise through the ranks until he serves as an archdeacon to our previous pope, Lucius. Obviously, he did something that was interesting or he was very good at his job because he becomes the archdeacon. And as we discussed last week, it seems that when Lucius knew that he was dying, he allegedly appointed Stephen to be his successor which is unusual and unique, and that's the story that's passed down to us, but we don't actually have any evidence of it. Okay, so we don't know if this was a some sort of papal assent on a choice that had been made through election, or whether he just wholly bypassed election process and appointed a successor, or if it happened at all, but... Since we don't know, let's make the story interesting and in saying, yeah, it totally happened. He he was appointed by his predecessor. That's never happened before. Cool. Yeah, shouldn't you get voted in or something? Like, even Calixtus wasn't appointed. Yeah, I mean, that as far as we know, more than likely he was just voted in, and this is something that kind of got added to the story, but we'll we'll see if Lucius thought he made a good choice. So, like our last two popes, most of what we know about his papacy is based on the accounts of Cyprian, who is the Bishop of Carthage. And Cyprian has been a super fanboy of our last two popes and really, really, really strongly supported their decisions and how they handled the Novatian Schism. That's not going to be the case for Stephen at all. No? <laughs> Um, once again, can I just say that hostile sources give us so much more detail, like... Why is he so mad about Steve? Steve is poking the bear. He's gonna be a scumbag Steve a little bit, <laughs> so... Oh, God. But at this point, I just, I need to continue to pray that these popes have arch nemeses coming up in the future, because we get so much more storytelling. So, <laughs> with that put on top of it. Pope Stephen was likely consecrated as the Bishop of Rome on May 12th of 254, and this already kind of pokes holes in the whole appointing your successor theory because it's two months after the credible dates that we have for Lucius's death, so... Yeah, you'd think he would be immediately Pope. Yeah, if you appointed a successor, why is this taking two months? But like his predecessor, he is coming to the church in an extremely fluxy time... And this current moment in particular is a, a little bit of a lull in what has been an awful persecution and lots of martyrdoms, since this is kind of right now where we are in concurrent history is the early stages of Emperor Valerian's reign. 
when he was either being more tolerant to the Christians or he just kind of hadn't gotten around to deciding what he wanted to do about them. Wishy-washy emperors, it's not going to stay that way. But for now, there's just a little bit of lull. But just because the church is getting a little break in terms of all of the people trying to kill them from the outside, this has not put an end to the problems inside of the church vis-a-vis the Novagian Schism. And even though we have sources that are saying that Lucius putting his foot down to uphold Cornelius's decision stamped out some of that major influence of the Novationists, it is still at this point not entirely gone, and it's going to span all sorts of new issues within the church ongoing for a long time. So this is still a problem. But before we get into those lovely internal issues that will take up the most of this episode, let's do Liber Pontificalis, because we need a little bit of crack in our lives. He held two ordinations, six priests, five deacons, and three bishops, and he is credited with an ordinance where clergy members were not to wear their religious vestments for daily wear. Okay. This is the actual quote from the Liber Pontificalis. It says, He forbade priests and deacons to use their consecrated garments for daily wear, save in church. Okay, so like the fancy things. Yeah, don't wear your fancy things when you're out and about and doing your shopping. You know, keep them nice. That's how you get them dirty and unfancy. And the fact that this needs to be an ordination says everything. Like, this is just the Liber Pontificalis reaching. Like, what can we give this dude? (laughs) I can't imagine that they are just walking out and about with that. Yeah, especially in a time of persecution. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Would not be your smartest move. Yeah, there's that. We also know that Stephen wanted to maintain the church practice of charity, like Pope Soter, and according to Liber Pontificalis, quote, used the wealth of the church to relieve in their necessities all the provinces of Syria and Arabia. We don't have any further elaboration on what exactly Syria and Arabia needed besides wealth for their relief. Like, we don't know what was going on in the church at that time. But clearly, this was notable enough for someone to record, so considering the rest of his papacy is going to be a difficult one, this is the purely positive thing that we're going to give him for a moment. So he gave people that needed it money. What year is this? Is it like maybe there is like a big, I don't know, tsunami. I don't know what's happening (laughs) in the desert. I I looked for it. Uh, There was not a tsunami in the desert. There's just, you know, we could probably discuss what was going on in Syria and Arabia as a whole as part of the empire. But as far as the Christian churches were concerned, I mean, we could probably say marauders, invaders, you know, terrible things. But if it was specific to church problems, it's a lot less clear. And it's so tangential to everything else that I didn't bother. So (laughs) we are going to not pad the papacy anymore and jump right into the issues, which, again, pretty much exclusively have to do with this idea of the lapsi. Which, if for some reason you're listening to this episode and jumping in at episode 25 and not listening to anything else... We have to set ourselves to serial or something. I don't actually know how to make that happen. There's gotta be a YouTube tutorial out there for for this process. We will make it happen. But yes, if you are jumping in and you don't know what the laps I are, 
They are the Christians who had apostatized during the persecution. So they had gone ahead and done the sacrifice to the pagan gods to save their life rather than die as a Christian martyr. And then we have the Novation Schism on that issue because the Novations had left the church because of their refusal to accept the lapsi back under any circumstances. The Novations are not having any of it, where the regular church is like, okay, this thing happened, do some penance and come back. But there's also one aspect of this that we haven't addressed yet because it hasn't been relevant to the story as much. But there is another group of people that complicate this issue a little further. We have the Christians who resisted the persecution and were martyred for it. And we have the Lapsi who did, in fact, sacrifice to save themselves. And then we have the Christians who had managed to avoid being called up yet, which is pretty much everybody who's still alive in the church. And now we have... The Libellatici, which are the Christians who had managed to get certificates of sacrifice through bribery or other means, which verified that they had made a sacrifice when they actually hadn't. Ooh, lies. Yeah, so these are the, like, bribers and stuff. So this complicates things because, one, you know, anyone who has a certificate could claim that oh, no, I bought my certificate rather than making a sacrifice. And even those who did actually bribe their way to a certificate would be under suspicion for lying about it, right? No, you just made the sacrifice and now you're saying you got it through bribes. Nobody knows for sure how you got that certificate, but you have one and that's a problem, basically. So this issue comes to the forefront over two Spanish bishops. We have Marshall of Merida and Basilides of Leon Astorga. These bishops fall into that category of libellatici because they have certificates that verify a sacrifice on their behalf. But the other bishops in Spain either don't believe that they just bought their certificates or they thought that having their certificates in any way was unacceptable. And so... One way or another, whether you did the sacrifice or you bribed for it. Or you're lying about it. It's bad news. Everything about this is not good for our church. So uh, the bishops in Spain get together and they depose these two bishops for being unfaithful to the church. Man. And they actually go so far as to appoint other people a man named Sabinus and Felix, to those positions. So they kick them out and put new people in their place. It's said that during this, you know, council of Spanish bishops, that the two bishops, Marshall and Basilides, actually acknowledged their guilt on the issue. So maybe they had made a sacrifice. And it's said that Basilides is way more accepting of his deposition. And he's very, very willing to just enter the lay communion after penance rather than fighting for his position as a bishop. Marshall's not having it that way, though, so he he's kind of the leader in this. Marshall knows that the Pope's position has been one of accepting the lapsi back with penance, so, okay, maybe we did this thing, maybe we're totally guilty, but the Church has forgiven people for this, and we're bishops. So Marshall and Basilides come to Rome and appeal to Stephen about this issue, and Stephen agrees to have them restored to their bishoprics. This goes about as well as you would think, because 
the Spanish bishops are not happy. You know, some are willing to begrudgingly accept the decision of the Pope, but others of specific areas, specifically Asturia, Leon, and Emerita, they refuse to accept the restorations and they turn to Cyprian. Now you might be asking, why Cyprian? He's in Carthage. That's quite a ways from Spain. Yeah, and he's also been a pretty ardent supporter of the Pope and the restoration of the Lapsi in the church so far. Well, it turns out in the case of these two bishops in particular, Cyprian really didn't think they were worthy of their post anyways. So while this appeal was undergoing, Cyprian had already written to the Pope and advised him not to reinstate them. Cyprian is not on board when Stephen goes against his advice and reinstates Marshall and Basilides. Oh no. Yeah, so when he receives the appeals from the Spanish bishops, Cyprian goes ahead and converts a synod of 37 African bishops to deal with this. And these bishops, these African bishops now, so we've had a, a synod of Spanish bishops who agree that they shouldn't be there, and now we have a synod of African bishops who agree with Cyprian. And so they support the Spanish bishops in rejecting martial imbecilities. And they renew their condemnation and declare that all Christians in Spain should not enter into communion with them and should look to the new bishops, which were Sabinus and Felix. And, and just to, you know, put a note on this. If you're wondering why Africa seems to have any power over Spain at this point, the Roman provinces of Hispania, which is Spain, and Africa Proconsularis are always somewhat linked, and much later on in history, like probably a thousand years from now, North Africa and Spain will even be melded together into one exarchate. It's called the Exarchate of Africa by Emperor Maurice. So they're always kind of linked, even though it seems a little bit weird. Well, I mean, we're going by modern maps. Yeah, exactly. This seems to be a real overstep of the bounds on behalf of the bishops in Africa, who are basically declaring that they reject and overturn a decision made by the Bishop of Rome. Uh, that's an excommunication. Uh, it seems kind of like it would be. But they're really careful about the language that they use regarding the Pope here. They don't say that he's, you know, making the wrong decision. They declare that Stephen was just unfortunately situated at a distance and ignorant of the true facts in the case. Ooh, that's rude. That's a as per my last email type of slap. Well, I mean, we don't actually have a direct response from Stephen in this matter. And... Unfortunately, this issue, all the things that we're going to talk about kind of happen all at the same time. So we're going to talk about his reaction kind of when we've talked about all of the pieces. That's piece one. The second issue is about Marcion or Marcianus, the Bishop of Arles in Gaul, which is France. So this is different from the Marcionite heretics that we've already talked about. This is just different. Just unfortunately named. Yeah, this is Bishop Marcion of Arles in Gaul, and he'd been the subject of some concern, especially to the Bishop of Lyon, who is a man called Faustinus, who writes to Stephen about Marcion. In Faustinus's letters, we learn that Marcion was either a follower or a sympathizer of Novation, 
and he'd been denying both penance and communion to any lapsi in his bishopric. Ooh, that's a problem. <laughs> this goes against the policy that had been steadfastly enforced by the last two popes on a hard enough line to cause the schism in the first place. So, what exactly is this man doing? Not doing the right thing. Yeah, he's uh, he's testing some boundaries here. So, Faustinus is writing to Stephen to deal with Marcion on more than one occasion. And since he doesn't seem to be getting a very satisfactory answer, the majority of the bishops in Gaul all get together and write to Cyprian to ask him to intervene with Stephen and get him to deal with this man. So, <laughs> we have Cyprian's letter that he then writes to Stephen, it's Epistle 66 of Cyprian, to support the Gallic clergy in their concerns, and he asks Stephen to depose Marcion and appoint a successor. He says, Let letters be directed by you into the province and to the people abiding at Arles, by which Marcion being excommunicated, another may be substituted in his place, and Christ's flock, which even to this day is contemned as scattered and wounded by him, may be gathered together. For the glorious honor of our predecessors, the blessed martyrs Cornelius and Lucius, must be maintained, whose memory, as we hold in honor, much more ought you, dearest brother, to honor and cherish with your weight and authority, since you have become their vicar and successor. For they, full of the Spirit of God, had established in a glorious martyrdom, judged that peace should be granted to the lapsed, and that when penitence was undergone, the reward of peace and communion was not to be denied. And this they attested in their letters, and we all everywhere entirely have judged the same thing. So he's saying, look, like, this guy is doing the wrong thing. We have all agreed that this is the wrong thing. You need to do something or the church in Arles is going to be broken for a very long time. And Stephen denies their request. Oh, no. He refuses to have Marcion deposed. Oh my god, why? What is up with Steve? He just, he has no sticking points. He is all over the board. He is, and he has, we we don't know why he does this. If he's standing firm on this pro policy that Cornelius and Lucius did, and obviously Lucius thought he was with him if he appointed him, this seems super counterproductive uh, to ignore a Novationist who's literally denying people into the church. And there is some speculation that since so much of Cyprian's writings are preserved and we don't have any further correspondence on the issue after Epistle 66, that maybe Marcion was deposed later on or Stephen might have changed his mind. But this is flimsy. Lots of things have been lost and we can still kind of figure out what was going on. The only other piece of evidence that we have that might support this theory that Marcion was deposed is that his name doesn't appear on an ancient list of the bishops of Arles, but again, omission doesn't mean anything because none of these lists are complete or exhaustive or perfectly preserved in the ancient world. That just, that just doesn't happen, so it's dumb. Either way, <laughs> like I said, we don't really see the direct outcome or resolution of the situation. And we'll find out a little bit more about how people feel about this when we get to our final issue. And that time is now. So this is the issue of baptism. <laughs> All right. 
So remember when I said that we probably wouldn't talk about the consequences of rebaptism for about a thousand years? Yeah. I lied, because we're going to talk about it right now. Oh no, why did you lie to me? I was thinking, you know, we'd be safe from this until the Anabaptists, but no, no we're not, not even a little bit. So this is all again related to the lapsi. In the east, the Asian provinces and Africa... The church is accepting the lapsi back, and they had been some of the most strong supporters of doing so, but beyond penance that was required by the church as a whole, these provinces also require the lapsi to be rebaptized as a means of cleansing away their sins and errors and rejoining the church fresh. But like we've talked about in the past, you are only to be baptized in the Catholic Church once. This is not a thing you do twice. This is a sacrament. This is a big deal. Yeah. But at first, we see Stephen being patient with this idea because this strong stance on baptism hasn't really been made clear yet. It wasn't too long ago that Pope Zephyrinus had been declaring a little bit of a need for rebaptism as well. So, you know, we have this source that says, St. Stephen suffered patiently when accused of favoring heresy by ratifying such baptism he did not doubt that the great men in whom a mistaken zeal seemed to obscure the truth would, when the heat of dispute had subsided, calmly open their eyes to the truth. Thus, by his zeal, he preserved the integrity of the faith, and by his toleration and forbearance, saved many souls. This is a much later source. Um, and they're trying to be nice about this by saying he didn't make a big strong sticking point about this, so he didn't excommunicate people, and therefore their souls were saved. But whoever wrote this didn't read the rest of the story. Stephen does not want to allow this to continue, and he clearly states that baptism is an indelible sacrament, and any Christian who had lapsed in the church did not need to be baptized again when re-entering. Penance only. If baptism was so easily erased, then it would completely destroy its power and sacred status within the church. So redoing a baptism, like, dilutes its significance. Makes sense. Oh, but this isn't all cut and dry, because nothing ever is in complicated things. There's another element to consider with baptism here. What about the people who were initially baptized by Novatianists and then came to the church? Oh. Because they still saw themselves as the righteous church and they were still baptizing people. Is that real baptism? Well, Cyprian and the African bishops argue that baptisms conducted by heretics could not and should not be seen as valid, and the lapsi especially needed rebaptism to be welcome to the Eucharist. So... They're saying, no way, this is, this is not accurate at all. But, and I will just point out really, really briefly here that I'm doing the research for Novation as an antipope right now, and I just want to say, although he's going to constantly be referred to in this as a heretic, there is no heresy with Novation. He is literally so much more orthodox than the actual church. That's not a thing. But... At this point, this is what's starting the argument. They're calling him a heretic, so he's baptizing people. These people have been baptized by heretics. And Cyprian is saying, when you're baptized by a heretic, that is not valid. And Stephen disagrees and declares that as long as the baptismal formula was carried out correctly, it doesn't matter who carries out the baptism. 
And this is actually the status of baptism today. Uh, baptism given with natural water in the name of the Trinity is binding invalid, even if it's conducted by a heretic, even if it's conducted by a schismatic, as long as it's given correctly with the right sentiment in mind, it's still valid and rebaptism is not a thing that you can do. That's fair. That's why they're like, oh, I guess you can uh, baptize people if like something terrible's happening. But this is the breaking point between Cyprian and Stephen's many disagreements. And Cyprian and the African bishops are absolutely not willing at this point to budge on this one. And Cyprian immediately confers a council at Carthage in 256 with the support of the African bishops. And they all get together and write this letter to Stephen in defense of their viewpoint and stated that over this issue, they're going to go to schism if Stephen doesn't back down. Oh, more schism? Well, maybe. In this letter, Cyprian argues that each bishop controlled his own see, and therefore they were within their rights to require a rebaptism in the face of such extenuating circumstances. He sends this letter with some envoys to Rome, and uh, Stephen is having none of this, and he's completely against the whole bishop controlling his own see thing, because no, I am the bishop of Rome, and I am in charge. And he puts his foot down. And for the first time that we've actually seen in the acts of the bishops of Rome since Pope Clement I, he pulls rank on the grounds of apostolic succession. Oh, yeah. The circular friends are back. <laughs> this is the first documented argument that papal supremacy comes directly from Jesus, who appointed Peter as the rock of the church, and that the Bishop of Rome was the unbroken succession of this authority. Like with Clement, he had stepped in and said, no, only I can depose those presbyters. Relax, Corinth, you're having a problem. But here we actually have Stephen saying, no, 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 no. You don't get to have any authority to make this decision. It lies with me and only me. I am the direct successor of Peter the Apostle. Shut it down. And this is a pretty big moment here because we've been talking about the prestige and respect that has been afforded to the Bishop of Rome as the head of the church. And we've seen moments where we see this consistently growing over time as a theory. You know, we have some of the most influential members of the church deferring to the bishops of Rome for their authority. But now it is laid out clear, full stop. Don't you dare think you have the same level of power as I do. I am the successor of the apostles. Power established. Boom. Wild. But Stephen's not using this power for good in this moment, because according to our source, which is Dionysius of Alexandria, he throws out Cyprian's envoys as heretics and threatens to excommunicate the whole bloody lot of them. Wow. Unless they stop rebaptizing people immediately. He also apparently calls Cyprian a false Christian and a deceitful workman. <laughs> Our little fanboy! Crush his little heart! Right? There's only one place that this is sourced from, and that's Vermilion of Caesarea, so uh, just pointing that out. This, this one man wrote this thing down. It may or may not happen, but 
Steven seems like kind of a jerk. Definitely scumbag Steve. Someone photoshopped that hat on him. <laughs> oh, that would make my day. Hint, 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 all of you good with Photoshop. Okay, so this line has been drawn and he's saying, what, you want to go to schism? I will excommunicate all of you. And it seems that Stephen ultimately wins. <laughs> we know that Dionysius of Alexandria steps in to try and moderate the issue and counsel Stephen away from this idea of excommunicating the whole of the African Episcopate, but we can see by the time of our next pope that Stephen's position was accepted as the prevailing message of the church, and the African bishops were conforming. No one is excommunicated in the end, but it was a very close call, and it's not over because the Eastern Church still has some debates on this issue to this day. <laughs> and heretical sacraments is going to be a whole new problem when we get to the Donatist controversy, so... Just because this issue is done doesn't mean that it won't come back. He wins, and Cyprian backs down. But then, Stephen dies. <laughs> <laughs> what a great segue. <laughs> and the Liber Pontificalis tells us that Stephen was beheaded while he was celebrating Mass with his congregation. Okay, I'm imagining, like, not like... Oh, yeah, then he got put, like, kneeled down, beheaded. I imagine, like, some pyramid head guy coming up and just <laughs> chopping his head off during mass. Well, okay, I'm going to dash your dreams, <laughs> at least for a little bit. Because, you know, even though this is stuck and it's expanded to be that he was sitting on his papal throne and it still exists and it's stained with blood and got, well, it was preserved up until the 18th century anyways. And here's the thing. We know 100% that this story is not true. Ah. Uh. And, and there's a reason for this. And it's because that's what's going to happen to his successor. Okay. So this is a real story. They have just attributed it to the wrong person. And um, Pyramid Head shows up later. Yep. You can have that vision when we talk about our, our next Pope. So spoilers, but we had to talk about it because it's always associated with Stephen and it's just wrong. Liber Pontificalis done. Also, they, if you read certain versions of the Liber Pontificalis, they also give Stephen Lucius's exile and return. So then they give Lucius's, um, how he appointed his successor. They say that Stephen was also the one who appointed his successor. So they're all over the place and they've morphed three different popes into Pope Stephen. Wow. That just gives you an indication of this book that we have to use as a source is, is not very good. In reality, Stephen probably died of natural causes, and all the other sources make it clear that he's not a martyr. He's not credited as a martyr in the Depositio Episcoporum, which is the martyrology from 354. He doesn't have a martyrdom commemoration, anything. Just probably natural causes. He gets buried in the catacombs of Calixtus, and he would be there until the 8th century when Pope Paul I has his remains moved to a new monastery that had been founded in his honor. So, scumbag Steve the monastery. The convent of the scumbag Steve. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, boy. Okay, so. I'm very sorry, everybody listening. Well, come on, at least we're going to have a scandal score. Yeah. Which, you know, it's time to rate him, so let's go. 
Papatum Infallium. He's one of the first known popes to actually base claims of primacy and authority on apostolic succession. But it sounded more like Cartman screaming, respect my authority. Oh, 100%. That's exactly what's happening. But that's a pretty big moment because we've been talking about this from episode one. Just keep that in mind. You know, he's actually slamming down some doctrinal authority over Cyprian. There's that. Just keep it in mind. And I'm not saying it's good. I'm not saying it's bad. You have to decide and be uh, objective in that. Uh, he relieves all of Syria and Arabia with the wealth of the church, so he gets one positive thing for sure. Um, he's kind of soft on Novatianism, obviously. He's, like, not deposing bishops that were upholding schismatic policies. Um, he was just so back and forth and all over. It was how, how scumbag Steve felt that day was the answer you were going to get. Which is so not what the church needs in the face of a schism, so that's definitely bad, Papatum and Valium. Again, this one we're going to have to decide whether it's good or bad, because he really does establish the validity of baptism as the one-time, indelible, binding thing, regardless of who performs it, as long as it meets those specific points of category, natural waters, in the name of the Trinity. He is really protecting the spiritual status of baptism in the church and the role that it plays in Christian life up to today. That's big. This is going to be a strong precedent that is set for validity of all sacraments, which is going to come up in the future. And making baptism a one-time and valid thing makes it easier for the lapsi to rejoin the church. So unity, growth, but also not unity. <laughs> and so what do you want to give them? Uh, so I'm going to give him, I'm going to give him one for the baptism, and I'm going to give him one for sending money, and that's all I'm going to give him. Okay, so you're going to give him a two. I will give him, hmm, I'm going to give him two for the baptism, I'm going to give him one for sending the money, and I'm going to give one for apostolic succession. So I'm going to give him a four, and he's going to get a six for Paptum Impelium. Fructus Prohibitum. Well... He nearly causes another schism, and he's not taking any steps to rectify turmoil in the church. Yeah, we can't have a schismception here. Yeah, and he's literally alienating the biggest Pope fanboy that exists at this time. So, like, what are you doing? I don't know. Uh, he's got to get some scandal here for it, because he's just, he's, like you said, he's scumbag Steve. He's not, if he were consistently one position all the way through okay that would just be a bad pope man and he'd score really low in papatum and Valium, but he's all over the place he's everywhere that's hugely problematic so he's definitely gonna get some points here yeah um honestly like the fact that he's just like yes no hot cold mm -hmm. and then he's like respect my authority just give him a four a four? Ooh. Also a big scandal score. Okay. I'll give him a two. And that'll give him a six for this category as well. So balances out. Seculara impactum. Seculari impactum. All of the impact he had was just mucking up the church. He didn't have really any relationship outside of the church that made things better or worse. 
you could argue that maybe it impacts secular people because if you are giving a baptism in natural water and you're doing it in the name of the Trinity, but you're a secular person, you might be able to perform baptism. I mean, we could at least, I guess we can give him a one for that. I mean. I think we got to give him a one between the two of us then. A half and half? Yeah. So he's going to get a one. That's okay. Fossium Sanctus. Okay. Well, scumbag Steve. Let's see if he has a perfect head to put that stupid hat on. <laughs> oh, he does. Yep, he does. But otherwise, there's, there's, I don't know, there's nothing remarkable about him at all. Kind of looks like a new girl's character. Like Nick Miller? Yeah. <laughs> oh no, this is angry old Nick Miller. I feel like that would be the perfect cast because Nick Miller is hot and cold and all over the place all the time. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> His score just went up so much. Oh, Nick Miller. Oh. Oh. Okay. We have now laughed for a long time. There's a bunch of episodes too where he like when he gets into his serious depression where he, like, looks like an old man and he records videos to himself for later on, he's like, hey, Nick Miller, I'm Nick Miller. Don't do those stupid things. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, so now that we have something to talk about here, what are we going to give his face, his new girl face? <laughs> I mean, I kind of want to give him, like, a six. All right, you can give him a six. You know, I'm... Yeah, I'll give him a five. Yeah. And then, okay, so He's that- Nick Miller. And, and Nick Miller is definitely a five in my book, so <laughs> that gives him a 2.75 for Facium Sanctus. Now I'm going to send you the other photo of him. Can you tweet, tweet Jake Johnson? <laughs> yes, I absolutely will. What do you think of this one? Is that a small boy? <laughs> With a mustache? He's the first pope we've had with, like, a mustache. I mean, it, it, mm, it looks like they taped the mustache to him. <laughs> Does he look like Nick Miller? He does a little. You gave Nick Miller anime eyes and a mustache? No, oh, he has a name when he puts on the fake mustache. What is it? Julius Pepperwood. <laughs> so, uh, the first one is Nick Miller, and the second one is Julius Pepperwood. So there you go. If if people listening to this have not watched New Girl, they're going to be so lost. <laughs> well, the intersection between classical history and people who watch New Girl seems like hopefully that Venn diagram is large. I'm hoping so. But if not, don't worry, we're moving on. <laughs> <laughs> Tempus Pontificus. May 12th, 254, to August 2nd, 257, giving him a score of 0 0.75 for his three-year reign. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round! Do, 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 do. He is a saint. His feast day is August 2nd, but in 1839, when the new feast of St. Alphonsus Mary de Liguri was added to the same date, Stephen got downgraded to a commemoration, and then in 1969, he got removed from the calendar of commemoration, but still occasionally referenced as that, so 
Believe it or not, he is the patron saint of something. Oh no. Yeah, he is the patron saint of Var in Croatia, which is a city who also has Saint Prosper. And he's the patron saint of the Archdiocese of Estergrom Budapest and Mogdiliana Cathedral in Romania, Italy, which was thought to be the monastery that was set up for him in the 800s. So, actual patron saint. He, we can't, we cannot make him the opposite of Pope Soder as the patron saint of scummy people. <sighs> because Soder is trying to better all those people who would otherwise come to Pope Stevens, so. Can we invoke him against scummy people? Oh, he would encourage them too much. <laughs> You're right. I just don't think we could do it. All right, so that brings us to his final score, which is a 17.5. <laughs> wow. Because he got a high scandal score. He literally scored higher than Pope Lucius. <laughs> oh, whoops. <laughs> I love it. Okay, and that brings us to our final question, which is he papely enough? Popey enough, pizzazzy enough, has he left an impression enough on you to be worthy of a papal bull? Oh, no. Even though he's a scumbag, he's not a compelling scumbag. He doesn't make me want to go and tell his story to other people, even though I'm telling it to everybody right now. I don't want to, like, stop people on the street and be like, Pope Stephen! <laughs> What about Pope Stephen I? I'm more compelled to tell people about Julius Pepperwood. <laughs> so, yeah. No. Straight to purgatory. Which seems just right. That's where you belong. <laughs> so, a couple thank yous to make. We want to thank, of course, Rex Factor and Totalis Rankium. Biggest supporters, biggest inspiration. Also, the Why Is That podcast for leaving a wonderful recommendation for us on Twitter. And the British History podcast, which people have informed me that they have found us through through Jamie. And I am not caught up, so I don't know if it's on an episode of his or if it was on Facebook or something. If you found us that way, please let us know. So that we can find it. I've already reached out and thanked him in person, in online stuff, but thank you. And if you haven't listened to his show, you need to. And, uh, we today, although we do not have all of the time to go through all of them, we've had wonderful, wonderful support from everybody on Twitter today because we were back participating in Follow Friday. So thank you to all of you who responded to our tweets, retweeted them, and then recommended us as well. So that's really cool. Thank you very much. We can be found on most major podcatching platforms, including Spotify. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook as Pontifax Pod. Feel free to message us. We usually always respond. If you want to send us a more long-form message, request, or otherwise get a hold of us, our email is pontifaxpod at gmail.com. For our bonus episodes and exclusive content, head over to our Patreon page and donate. That's patreon.com forward slash pontifaxpod. If you feel the need to buy us a tea, because we're not really coffee drinkers, but we do love tea, you can throw us a few bucks in our PayPal account at paypal.me forward slash pontifaxpod. As always, please subscribe and rate and review on iTunes or whatever you use. It really helps us get recommended to other people and allows more people to find us. Thank you, and goodbye. Bye. Bye.